Welcome to Real Talk for Real Teachers. I'm Dr. Becky Bailey, the creator of Conscious Discipline, an expert in child development and education, and a lifelong learner and teacher. For those listening who are not aware of Conscious Discipline, it is a comprehensive, trauma-informed, brain-based self-regulation program that combines discipline, social-emotional learning, and school culture into one integrated process. Real Talk for Real Teachers is a growing community of loving professionals. Today, we were talking about kids who have experienced domestic violence. Women have been encouraged to break silence about sexual harassment, thanks to the hashtag MeToo movement that swept the world fairly recently. The hashtag MeToo movement actually existed way before 2017 and 2018, but it took those particular times before it reached national attention, and it was at the right time at the right place. It took on traction and reached 196 countries. And so big that Time Magazine named the Silence Breakers, all the women who came forth, as the 2017 Person of the Year, which is the first time it's not named an individual, but all the women who spoke up. This hashtag movement dealt specifically with sexual violence and truly is part of a larger conversation that probably we need to all revisit. And that one is the one we're going to talk about today. It's about another worldwide silent epidemic, and that's domestic violence. Just to get you started, I would like to share some shocking statistics. Every nine seconds, a woman is beaten or assaulted in the United States. Every day, three women are murdered by their current or former partner. One half of the homeless women on the street are fleeing domestic violence. 75% of those that flee are hunted and killed by the abusive partner. 40 million adult Americans grew up living with domestic violence. And it is pervasive, very pervasive. It affects one in four women and one in seven men. And this one kind of got me. What I found is the number of women killed by domestic violence is two times greater than all soldiers killed in the Afghanistan and Iraq war during the same period of time. So twice as many women died as soldiers in two wars. So, uh, you know, I don't know if this hits you hard, but it certainly hit me kind of in the gut and took my breath away just hearing the statistics. I mean, somehow you know them, but when you hear them out loud, It does take a a little getting used to. So now let's shift our attention to the children, the children who have witnessed this violence in their homes. First of all, I want to tell you that it's an estimated 5 million of those children per year who witness it. So what happens to these children? Well, in general, as you can imagine, they become fearful and anxious. They're always on guard, watching, waiting for the next event to occur. They never know what the trigger might be to cause the abuse, and therefore they never feel safe. They're always worried for themselves, their mother, and their siblings. They may feel worthless and powerless. 95% of the time, the children witness a male abusing a female. So children who grow up with abuse are expected to keep this family secret. This again puts us into the category of let's all keep it silent. They learn to bury the shame within their nervous system often creating post-traumatic stress disorder, again, similar to those soldiers we spoke about earlier. They can look fine on the outside, but on the inside, they're in terrible pain. 
They may blame themselves for the abuse, thinking if they had done something different or not done something, it would have all not occurred. They feel isolated and vulnerable. Often these children are starved for affection and approval. Because mom is struggling to survive, she is often not present for her children. Because dad is so consumed with controlling everyone, he also is not present for his children. These children become physically, emotionally, and psychologically abandoned. These statistics and this understanding is daunting, but we can make a difference. And that's the good news. And here to help us with more good news and to share her knowledge, experience, and expertise is Kelly Frazier A. Okay, Kelly, help <laughs> me with it. It's Kelly Frazier Wawire. Wawire. Beautiful. Yep. She even spelt it out for me and she put it in little phonemes so I would get it right. And guess what? Boogered that up. But uh, Kelly is a seasoned 15-year educator with 10 years in the Chicago public schools. She started out as a high school teacher, but transitioned to early education after teaching for two years in the Peace Corps in Bangladesh. She received her elementary education certification and ultimately left the classroom in 2011 to study clinical social work. And she provided play-based therapy to children on Chicago's West Side. She is now the social emotional learning or the SEL specialist for the Chicago Public Schools. So welcome, Kelly, to Real Talk for Real Teachers. Thank you, Becky. I'm happy to be here. And I want to apologize again for you gave me every help possible to say <laughs> your last name. And I practiced and practiced. And at the last minute, nerves got the best of me. It's okay. My dad still can't say it either. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, Kelly, uh, what drew you to or how did you become aware of conscious discipline and what attracted you to it? And why have you sustained your interest in it? After I finished my program for social work. I found myself back in a school um, as a student-facing social worker, but also a member of their leadership team. And what was really interesting about the school where I was is it's a school with a very progressive model of education, but in one of Chicago's most challenged communities. Um, and so from the, the very start, uh, we were trying to think about how we could equip our teachers and staff with the skills that they'd need to be both true to the philosophy of, uh, of the model, but also um, able to support students who had really uh, often very traumatic histories and who were experiencing chronic stress and exposure to community violence. So it was really in my first year that I discovered conscious discipline. Um, I had never known about conscious discipline before, but one of the hats that I was wearing at that time was as the Head Start Mental Health Consultant. So I was at a meeting for Head Start Mental Health and uh, they showed a broken video clip uh, because the Wi-Fi was not working of Kim Jackson. And as soon as I saw even the little bit that I had seen, I knew that I had to learn more about conscious discipline. So it was really through that first experience that I set up some um, school visits and classroom visits in what was at that time the nearest urban district to Chicago that had conscious discipline, which was Rock Island, Illinois. And from that point on, I was able to bring conscious discipline to the school first through our Head Start teachers, um, but really saw that it was a model that we could use that 
uh, would enable us both to be true to this progressive pedagogical philosophy and also would equip our teachers with the skills that they need to be able to support our students. When you were watching it at Rock Island, what stuck out to you? I mean, anything kind of like, oh, was it something you saw, something you heard? What kind of grabbed you? I think what what really stood out to me um, was that the teachers were really excited about what they had learned about conscious discipline and really believed strongly that it had um, enabled them to be more successful with their students. Um, Even though, you know, like the students that we had in Chicago, a lot of the kids there were also experiencing really similar challenges. Um, And it was unusual for me to be in conversation with teachers um, who are working with populations that experience so much chronic stress to be so excited about something that had been brought to the school. I think, you know, oftentimes teachers can feel like programs come and go, um, but there was something very different about how the teachers were expressing their feelings about conscious discipline. So that was, that was one of the things that stood out to me. So it was almost like you saw the hope in them, the hope that there is something I can do, and it kind of, you could see their own joy being brought back into their own chosen profession, that they could make a difference. Exactly. Okay, so from there, you took this back to your classrooms. Tell us about that. Were the teachers receptive, struggling? How much buy-in did you get? And then did you see any results over time? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, because conscious discipline was very much aligned with the philosophy with which the school had been established, there was immediately, I think, interest in learning more Um, But if there's one thing that I've learned in my experiences, having been a teacher in communities that had a lot of challenges and then then being in a leadership role, it's that even if you have the philosophical mindset from the start, and even if you um, come into education with so much passion and hope, um, the reality of the work can be so challenging. And the the kind of um, reflection that conscious discipline encourages is still very challenging, even with teachers who from the onset are, are very philosophically aligned. So I would say, you know, there was a lot of interest, um, but conscious discipline, it, it, it's not an easy process. You know, it really requires a lot of deep reflection and change of mindset, sometimes that we didn't even know that we had. Um, so the, the process that we found to be successful was uh, I started with the teachers who were really interested in going through the process of self-reflection, not really knowing where the journey was going to take them. And we just went really slowly through the book in a book study, just chapter by chapter during the year and folding in practices throughout that year and incorporating them into the classrooms just without any pressure. Um, And by the end of the year, there had been enough success in each of those classrooms. The teachers were, they were able to see how um, incorporating some of the structures and rituals themselves had been really helpful for them and for their students, but, but also how they were starting to see their students from a different perspective. So from there, there was a lot more buy-in. And so teachers were really excited about going deeper and starting the school year with a lot of new ideas. And then their colleagues were also seeing that there had been a lot of really incredible changes in some of those classrooms. 
let's back that up. Do you have any kind of real stories? What would a, a child with such chronic stress, what is that their behavior or they look like? And what do you see in the child? And what does that dynamic do to the relationships in class? Sure. So I, you know, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of an example um, in particular of a student who started at the school um, in his kindergarten year and from the very start without really knowing a whole lot about him or his background, it was really clear that he was coming into school with a trauma history. I think actually within the first week of school, he had pulled the fire alarm a few times and I mean, he was clearly just a kid who was in crisis. And that year was very challenging for him. So, you know, some of what we saw, he really struggled to connect with his peers. He didn't have a lot of close friendships. His peers kind of perceived him as, you know, being a kid who was sort of on the fringes of their community. The teacher, you know, really cared a lot about the student and invested a lot of time and energy into supporting him. But he really struggled and, and was destructive. So he would often, um, you know, destroy things in the classroom or um, he would get into fights with his peers. We learned a little bit about his history. We, we knew that he had had lost a parent in a really violent way to community violence. And so we had that awareness as well, that he had a lot of, he had a lot of needs. So that year, there, there wasn't conscious discipline in his classroom. We didn't yet have that in the school. But when he moved on to um, his next classroom, that was the year that we started folding conscious discipline into some of the classes. And, you know, his teachers, I think, just like his kindergarten teacher, at first really struggled to understand his needs and how to be helpful to him. But... Through the process of conscious discipline, probably about halfway through the year, we were able to start having conversations not so much about his behaviors being related to work or to, um, to like interpersonal conflict, but really seeing even that interpersonal conflict as being related to him being disconnected from his class. So even just reframing our conversations about his need for connection and then being really strategic about how we could provide him with opportunities to be connected with his class, we saw almost immediately that he, uh, he was starting to feel safe. Um, he wasn't getting into as many fights. Um, he was participating more in activities, especially activities where his whole class was involved. Um, he was getting invited to things outside of school. So his entire experience changed, not just in his classroom, but also, I think, just, you know, in his life. Um, so that's just one example. Yeah. So once the teachers slowly could see a child's behavior differently and see that those were uh, something's missing and the child's calling for help, then they were able to just kind of shift their mind and strategically come up with, uh, like you said, intentional ways of meeting those needs. And let me just clarify. So you're saying fairly quickly he changed then. As soon as the, the mindset was shifted from his behaviors being attention-seeking to connection-seeking, um, and as soon as his teachers, I think, saw it from that perspective, we saw... A lot of changes start right away. Yeah. 
up until that point, it was really slow. So what is one of your, uh, besides that, it was a beautiful story, what is some other results you have seen once a teacher is able to get over that mindset and learn the skills too? Because, you know, conscious discipline asks you to change your mind and then gives you kind of the how-to to proceed from there. What are some of the other results you've seen with these kids who you say have been exposed to possibly a lot more violence than we could ever imagine? Yeah, you know, I've seen so, so many examples. I think from a broader perspective, seeing classrooms that have been really successful in integrating conscious discipline strategies and structures, that it's not just about like a single student, but because our students often come from communities that are really fractured, um, that sense of community is, is something that I think is really incredible to see. Students are often coming from communities where there are different gangs within a certain area. Um, they're coming from communities where there isn't a lot of social cohesion in their neighborhoods, and so they have a hard time trusting each other. They have a hard time trusting adults. So, you know, going into a classroom where, you know, you may have seen from the start that that there's not a lot of trust in the community and then seeing that develop over time and seeing kids really take ownership and a sense of shared responsibility for their community and being of service to their community together is something that is really powerful to see, especially considering the context um, of what their lives are like outside of school. So, you know, we say in conscious discipline, I mean, you know, we want to model a classroom out of a healthy family. Yeah. You know, we're unconsciously, we probably all model anything after our, our family, you know, our, our relationships, our own homes. But we're trying something different here, kind of an experiment of what if we created a healthy model a healthy family model and instilled it in a classroom for teachers and children. So what I'm hearing you say is that that's possibly working. Once we get that healthy model installed into a classroom, the kids just kind of uh, adapt and absorb themselves into it, almost like a drought waiting for rain. Yeah, and I, I'm thinking of a I'm thinking of another example, another student who. Um, without going into detail, had a really significant um, history of, of trauma and chronic stress and, and family stress. Um, and he was with us for two years, exhibiting a lot of the same behaviors as you know I've described before with, with the other student. Um, but it was really when his classroom adopted conscious discipline that he started really being safe as well. And, and one thing that his uh, parents said toward the end of the year, um, she came to the school and she was talking with one of the adults um, on staff and said, you know, I don't know what it is that's different this year, but my son comes home all the time and he says, mommy, my class wishes me well. Um, and so all of those destructive behaviors, you know, things that he was sort of replaying in his classroom I believe were dissipated because he he felt like he was supported by his class. Someone has your back. You know, it's amazing how important that is to all of us that we have supportive uh, cushion of wonderful people that surround us and just lift us up daily. So, have you ever seen kids that dissociate or kind of 
blank out. Have you seen that with the people you work? Oh, definitely. And so we often, you know, when we deal with kids who've had a lot of trauma and stuff, we kind of get on that hypervigilant scale, you know, the one where they're acting out and doing all this and throwing things. You know, we can see that as a off-the-chart behavior. But when we see the other end where the children are shut down and disassociate and kind of disappear into the background, those are often missed. Now, have you seen the same results with both these kind of states or children who kind of go back and forth between these states? Are they also reachable? Can they be pulled into the school family? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, with regard to thinking about what pieces of conscious discipline I think have been really um, powerful with students who are often dissociated. You know, I think obviously, you know, all together, the school family is is supportive of kids who have externalizing and internalizing behaviors. But um, I think that that intentionality with which we learn how to connect with kids is really powerful. So like love rituals, changing the way that we greet kids in the morning for, for the kids who are more internalizing, I have seen that that has been a really powerful way to help them feel like they're safe and kind of help them come out of their shell. It is amazing to me because, as you well know, and some of the listeners, I mean, conscious discipline is a, it's a big program. But I have found, and I don't know if you agree with this, Kelly, but it's some of the small things. Small changes make big difference as long as our intention is aligned with a mindset of seeing the best in each other. Is that what you found? Oh, I think that is absolutely true. And, and I've actually, I've heard teachers when I've asked them, you know, what, what do you feel has been really useful? I mean, I think obviously all of the structures and the rituals and the skills are useful, but I've had teachers say that changing the way that they've greeted their students in the morning has had a huge impact and that hasn't added any time or taken away from anything that they may have in place or or need to do in their class but just changing the way that they interact with the students has a huge impact on the classroom and on those individual kids so that leads us to this what would be the three takeaways so i'm a teacher I know my child has experienced a lot of trauma. There's a lot of violence possibly in the home and in the community. And they come into me. What three things, three things that you would like for teachers to take away from from our time together? So what's number one? Uh, So I think one big takeaway is that there is a difference between calling for attention and calling for connection. And I think Traditionally, we think of externalizing behaviors often as being attention-seeking, but really, you know, kids are often acting out when they're feeling disconnected from us or from their classmates. So, you know, shifting our perspective on that will help us to be more intentional about helping kids find um, healthy ways to have that need met within their classroom. Um, And I have seen that when that perspective is taken, um, when we see the, the need for connection, that a lot of times those behaviors start to, to dissipate pretty quickly. So that's one. Okay. And I've always said this, you know, you take uh, some of these big known actress or actor that receives a ton of attention from the media, from people, 
They're clawed at if they walked out in public, like Lindsay Loam. And that doesn't seem to change their behavior. They still have problems with drugs and other things. And what they're really calling for is connection, someone to look at them face to face and see who they truly are and just make that beautiful eye contact and someone caring touch and just be with them is what they're actually asking for. So we can see that in our own lives, that you can give someone all the attention in the world, but to have someone sit there and look at you and adore you and love you face to face is a whole different ballgame. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think another, another takeaway is that we don't have to burn out. <laughs> you know, I think all of the, the things that bring us to being an educator, all of our hopes, um, all of you know, the care that we have for children, all of our thoughts about how education is tied to creating a more equitable and caring society, um, those things don't have to disappear because we're working in this really complex, often challenging system. You know, I think one of my takeaways um, is that conscious discipline provides it provides concrete and practical ways that we can interact with our students, that we, f- we feel equipped and we can handle uh, situations that come our way and don't feel overwhelmed. And I, I've seen that when teachers, even teachers who have felt like they're really exhausted, um, I've, I've seen them restore some, some of their joy. So that's a huge takeaway, I think, in especially... Um, especially in schools that serve a lot of students with a lot of needs. You know, and in Chicago Public Schools, we're at, I think it's about 78% of our students are considered uh, disadvantaged economically. We have a lot of students in different areas of the city that are exposed to ongoing community violence, who have a lot of exposure to chronic stress and trauma, that even in those situations that we're likely to kind of absorb some of that stress that our our students bring in to the classroom that with these skills and and tools this is also it's it provides some protective factors for us as well yes beautiful beautiful and the third one i think the third takeaway you know in in chicago public schools there there have been a lot of efforts within the past few years um, that have led to some shifts in thinking about social-emotional learning, and there have been a lot of changes to policies um, that are intended to be more restorative, especially with with discipline. Um, in making those shifts, we're, we're also trying to think about, like, what are, what it, what are the needs of schools? Um, and a lot of what we draw from is from CASEL, the Collaborative for Academic and Social Emotional Learning, and they've identified a number of different components that are truly indicative of supportive environments in schools, including not just social emotional curriculum, not just social emotional learning, but developing a school-wide supportive environment and structures, safety and order, collaborative leadership among teachers and school leaders, and student voice, so student leadership, increasing and strengthening relational trust between leaders and staff, and staff and students, and between students, providing adult social-emotional learning, and then restorative discipline and restorative practices. Those are just some of the components that they've identified as being essential for 
creating the kinds of spaces in which our students can truly thrive and be successful. And one of the things that I have loved about taking on this new role and learning about all of these, this new research around what is a safe and supportive environment is that in my experience, I've seen how conscious discipline can really be a powerful way of really developing all of these different areas and components for a school. So let me go through these with everybody. So the first one is that intentional connection is a huge takeaway. Number two is the fact that with conscious discipline, you can get protective factors for both children and teachers. And the third one is with all the research and being an SEL specialist in the Chicago schools and the opportunity to really look deeply into the research and work with the organizations that are making huge changes uh, in the United States, you believe that conscious discipline can fulfill those needs and and make a difference. Is that right, Kelly? Yeah, I, I think that's really true. I think that it's a really powerful way of supporting schools and developing in some of these areas. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Kelly, and sharing with us all that you're doing and, and all that many teachers are becoming and all the wonderful things happening in Chicago. And we want to thank you for your hard work and thank you for joining us today on Real Talk with Real Teachers. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. Hope to have you back. Okay. And so the next thing is then, what is Becky up to? Well, believe it or not, I'm up to my own discovery of my own trauma. So years ago, lots of years ago now, when I was 16, I had a major car accident that was uh, where I was pronounced dead, et cetera. And so it was a big trauma. And so I was always aware that I had this single trauma in my life. And now as we get more into the work and conscious discipline constantly ask us to self-reflect and change ourselves first to, to become the person you want others to be. So I have realized that I've had more than that one single event, that I grew up in a house. Uh, my father was a Secret Service agent, and we moved constantly. And I have come to realize the impact of chronic, chronic stress and moving uh, to the point that it's putting pieces together for me. So I've been back into the polyvagal theory which I've studied many years ago, but now with new eyes. So I'm working on my own issues and I'm growing and enjoying it immensely, even though at times it is tough. But I can see how I'm replaying old things in my current year that was conditioned in me from my very early years. So what do we got for some celebrations? Well, one of the things I want to celebrate is that the majority of the world got to hear Bishop Michael Curry sermon on the power of love during the royal wedding of Harry and Meghan. And so I love the fact that someone talked about the power of love. And I love the fact that he said, if we could just love one another, then love your neighbor and then love the community. And the next thing you know, we're family. So can I get an amen there for the bishop? And until next time, I wish you well. For more episodes of Real Talk with Real Teachers by Dr. Becky Bailey, visit ConsciousDiscipline.com forward slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app.